I want to spend time in, in the next few uh, in the next few minutes in in chapter eleven of the book of Job and go. Uh, and touch on all the way to chapter number 14. It's kind of a wide span, span. but if you knew what was left on the cutting room floor, you'd be thankful for what we have here. <laughs> because there, there's just, it's a lot here, and it's a, a rich, I, I have been enjoying uh, enjoying reading Job and wrestling with, with the text and, and trying to understand understand the, the, the train of thought and understanding what God is is teaching us and reminding us. And when we come to this chapter, we are introduced to the third of Job's friends named Zophar. We've already met the first, the first uh, two. Um, but in these chapters, we are reminded that, that although God is transcendent above all creation, that he is, he stands outside of creation, and in his very essence, he is incomprehensible. That is, we, we cannot know God with complete comprehension. We cannot know everything there is to know about God. At the same time, by, by God's mercy and because of his grace, he has made himself known. So God is knowable in that he has revealed himself and he reveals himself to us for the purpose of his people knowing him. And that is an important principle, an important truth for us to grasp and to hold on to because our hope and peace in in this life is realized only in the knowledge of our God. In fact, real joy it can, can be realized only in understanding that the whole purpose of life in this world and in the life to come is to live for the glory and the honor of our God. That is the purpose of our life. And when we lose, when we lose sight of that, which we all do, then immediately what replaces the glory of God is our own comfort and our own glory. And whether you have lived long enough to realize it or not, and even when we realize it, we still do it, when our focus becomes on our own comfort and our own enjoyment and in our own selves, we become the most miserable of of all people. Because there are billions and billions and billions and billions of stars in our world in all of creation, and all of those stars and planets and everything that has been created orbits around one central object. And that object is not you. (laughs) And so everything is thrown off in our world and in our understanding when we lose sight of the fact that God created the heavens and the earth for the purpose of his own glory. You exist for the glory of God. Now, the the joy of that is when we come by God's grace to realize that to the fullest, we then can truly enjoy God. And we can live with a hope in this present world. And we can live with the anticipation of a better world that is to come. And so as we make our way through these chapters, it, 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 the text sometimes can be difficult to, to lay hold of 
But that our central theme is understanding that for the New Testament saint, now we're reading in an Old Testament book, and it's and I want to be careful that we don't we don't superimpose the New Testament upon the Old Testament, but but I believe it reveals to us that Job recognized this very thing that God has made himself known to man, even in the Old Testament. And that God, by his grace in the Old Testament, brought men to a saving faith, whereas they believed God and it was counted to them for righteousness. But for the New Testament saint, for you and for me, on this side of the cross, God's perfect revelation of himself is his son. Right? We, we can know that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now John 17 in this in, in Jesus what we call Jesus high priestly prayer shortly before he is arrested we are given we are made privy to his prayer conversation with the father. And in that conversation and in that prayer Jesus describes for us eternal life. He describes it as knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So understand this, think through this. Jesus describes what it means to have life. To have life is to be brought into a right relationship with our Creator. It is to know the one true God and it is to know his son whom he has sent. And the significance of this is that Jesus Christ came to ransom people for God so that in our redemption we might truly know God. Outside of what Christ has done, we cannot know God. And our passage this morning poses the question, can you find out the deep things of God? That question was posed by Zophar, the friend and counselor, poor counselor as he was, of Job. Job answers that question, acknowledging that although God is incomprehensible, he is knowable by self-revelation. But Job will take us, take, take us a little further than that because he learns both in our passage this morning and in the remaining chapters of the book that this self-revelation of God is acquired only through suffering. Now we can apply that very very easily to the New Testament. If you want to see a true revelation of God, look to the cross, the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. Envisions for us the very justice of God. It portrays for us the righteousness and the holiness of God in that he was a man acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows. Why? Because he was pure. He was holy. He was apart from all creation and he, and he entered into this world condescending into the human race right smack dab in the cesspool of this fallen world. So we, we see in the sufferings of Christ 
God's revelation of himself. And Job understands, or he is not at this point, he understands by the time God is through with him in chapter 42, but he understands that for him to truly know God and to grow in the grace, I was going to quote a New Testament text, to grow in his knowledge of God, it would come through his suffering. Now, now that's, that's, a, that's a difficult pill to swallow, but, but the reality is we live in a fallen world, and we are given to suffering in this world, and even, or not even, but especially as Christians, we are called and appointed to suffering. Let's kind of work our way through, through the text this morning. First of all, the question is posed, can you find out the deep things of God? Who can know him? This is Zophar who poses this question. And uh, we already met his first two friends. His, two, his first two friends, um, uh, they came to, to comfort him. They were Eliphaz and Bildad. Um, the third here is Zophar. And we meet him here in chapter 11. But like the first two, Zophar was perturbed toward Job. He was angry at Job. Because Job poured out, in, 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 in theological terms, he vomited out his emotions. He spit out everything that he was feeling. Even, even Job recognized that the things that he, was, that he was spouting off was just wind. He was just kind of bearing it all before them. But he was still adamant, Job was very adamant, the fact that, that there is no secret sin in my life. I stand right before God. And we're going to look at that more closely in just, in just a bit. But Zophar was perturbed toward Job because he so brazenly claimed his innocence before God, and he argued that he was not deserving of the affliction that he was facing. So neither Zophar nor the first two friends believed that God would do such a thing as to afflict an innocent man. So Zophar poses this question. Verse number seven, look, look with me in your Bibles and Job chapter 11, verse number seven. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? So when we looked at Eliphaz a couple of weeks ago, he focused on the holiness of God. But Zophar now begins to describe the wisdom of God or, or the, the omniscience of God, that he is all-knowing, he knows all things. All knowledge is from God. All truth is God's truth. So by, by wisdom, so far re refers to, as, to the, the omniscience of God. He, and he makes four points here. Look, in, look, look what he says in verse number seven. First thing that he says is, first thing he tells us is that God's wisdom cannot be fathomed by man. So he asks these two questions. Can, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? It's a rhetoric, they're rhetorical questions because the answer is, is no, you can't. He is beyond your understanding. He is incomprehensible in that, in that aspect. The second is God's wisdom fills all things. Verse number eight, his wisdom is higher than the heavens. What can you do? It's deeper than Sheol, that is the grave. What can you know? God's wisdom, its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. In other words, he said, he's saying to Job, Job, you cannot scale the heavens. You cannot penetrate the grave. Job, you can't travel across the earth or span its sea. 
So this knowledge must be inferior to that of God. Your, your knowledge is inferior to God. You cannot know everything about God. The third point that he makes is in verse number 10, that God's wisdom perceives hidden wickedness. In other words, God's wisdom, his omniscience is that he sees the very heart of man. That's true, by the way. In fact, all of these things are true that Zophar claims. He describes this, he says, if he passes, if God passes through, the, through and imprisons and summons a court, that is, if he arrests someone and he calls to order a court of law, who can turn him back? Who can stand up to his justice? Why? There's no way of standing up to God's justice because he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? In other words, God knows that you have secret sins, Job, and you're guilty. No man can restrain the Lord when he passes by or when he imprisons or he summons a court. Judgment on a sinner, God alone, alone uh, God, God knows man. And, and without, um, without any effort, he sees the iniquity in the heart. The fourth point that, that Zophar makes is that God's wisdom is more glorious when compared to the stupidity of man. Now that's, that's ESV translation. I don't like that word stupid. But sin makes you stupid. So we'll use the word stupidity of man. Right? So empty-headed men will only get understanding when a wild donkey gives birth to a man. Isn't that an interesting proverb? In our vernacular, we might say, when pigs fly. You will come to know God when pigs fly. There are some issues with Zophar's argument. It's not that those things that he just stated here were incorrect. Um, turn, turn with me just a couple of chapters into the book to, verse, to chapter number 13. Job issues an indictment against Zophar. And, and it's not just against Zophar, but it is against the two previous friends as well, to all three of them, because they all had the same, same bias against Job and partiality toward God. In fact, had Zophar ceased to speak in chapter 11, uh, if he ceased to speak at chapter two, at verse number twelve, he would have done well. I, instead, he pre- presumes Job to be guilty of hidden sins, and he calls him to repentance. If you read the latter part of chapter eleven, he calls Job to repentance, and he does it in a formulaic way. He he says, "If you do this, then God will do this." In other words, we push this button, and God will respond this way. He put God kind of in a in a formula way. If you do this, then this will this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. There's there's nothing wrong with the theology of Zophar up to this point. There is error, and actually there is sin in his assessment on God in trying to defend God's glory from Job's claims. He was a great theologian, Zophar was, and he wanted to defend God. Let me just say this very quickly. Um, If, in fact, a brother in Christ is taken in a sin... According to Galatians chapter 6, according to the entirety of the New Testament, 
If a brother in Christ is taken in sin, the most loving thing you can do is actually go and approach them and confront them in the spirit of humility, by the spirit of God, with the intent of restoring them back into right fellowship with the Lord. It may require a call to repentance, which is always uncomfortable, but always the most loving thing you can do. Real friends don't let their friends live in sin without, without a call to repentance. Here's the problem. When Zophar presumed that Job was guilty of hidden sin, he did so because he presumed, based on human reasoning, that God was incapable of afflicting the innocent. That was appalling to him, that God would actually afflict the righteous. Here we find ourselves in chapter 13, and notice Job's indictment against Zophar and his friends. Verse number one, they're pretty catty when you read through these. They're, 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 um, he says, behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. So stop calling me stupid. But then he says this, but I want to speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. How's that for boldness? We're going to come to that in just a minute. By the way, God doesn't rebuke him for this, or God doesn't um, punish him for this, but we'll come back to it in just a minute. Verse number four. But as for you, you, and he, he listened to the descriptions of, his, of the counsel that Zophar had given to him as well as his friends. You whitewash with lies. You worthless physicians are you all. All that you would keep silent and it would be to your wisdom. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God? Will you speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Now, I understand that as we read that, you might say, what? What does that mean to show partiality toward God? I wrestled with that, with, with that for a long time until I just actually read the text. He explains what it means. What, it, what, what this means is that Zophar and his friends were convinced that God's character needed to be protected so much so that they exaggerated and spoke falsely about God. If we were to go back a few chapters and look at Eliphaz, we find that they all agreed, including Job, they all agreed that Job's afflictions were from God, but Job argued that it was not the consequences of sin on his part. He was arguing that God had afflicted him for no known reason. Okay, that was Job's argument. God has afflicted me for no known reason. There was a reason, but at that point, Job did not know the reason. It was an unknown to him. But in God's defense, Eliphaz argued 
I had a dream. That's always his argument. You can go back and read it. Um, I had a dream, and the dream says that God doesn't punish the innocent. Um, Bildad claimed that history showed only the wicked suffer. Remember he asked, he said, look in history. This is my own, my own translation. Look in history. Has it ever been seen that the, that the righteous suffer? Yes. <laughs> so so the, there's the exaggeration there. They are, they are whitewashing God. They're trying to make sure that he looks pretty so that he doesn't look too bad with Job's claims. And then Zophar just basically said, Job, you're just stupid. But the heart of the issue was not that they had bad theology. Much, not all of it, but much of their theology was right, was correct. But when it came to this matter, rather than what God had revealed through natural revelation or whatever special revelation they may have had at that time, they assessed the parameters of God's behavior upon their own feelings and emotions. Their theology on this matter was based on reason, on human reason rather than revelation. Pastor friend of me once described the problem with our with with the study of theology. We all like to have our own particular framework for God to fit in. So we we draw this little framework of where God and I think I've shared it with you in the past. Little frame where little box where God would fit in. God God does this. God does that. This is where He is. All of that. He said the problem with every one of our theological systems is that. As we put God in a box, all these little threads begin to fall out of the edges. And all those threads we become uncomfortable with, so we just take our scissors and just clip it off and pretend it's not even there. And that's what these guys are doing. God, God's not going to afflict the, the, the righteous. God's not going to afflict the, the innocent. Now, that's not to say that we should stay away from doctrine and theology. You, you might be sitting back and say, well, that's why I don't talk about doctrine, so I'm going to talk about theology. No, 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 that's not what, it, that's not what we're learning here. It, that's impossible for you to, to not be involved with doctrine and theology. We're all theologians. We, all of us, even the atheist is a theologian, right? We are all theologians. It's just a question of the source of your doctrine and the source of your theology, Right? You cannot base your ideas about God based on your own emotions and on your own reasoning. In other words, God wouldn't do that. Why wouldn't he do that? Because I wouldn't do that. But you're not God. But if I was, I wouldn't. Well, thank God that you're not God. Do you understand what I'm saying? We, we, we want to be very careful that we don't just assume upon God how we would view the world. Rather, especially as New Testament saints, we have the divine revelation of God who tells us what God is like, who lays out for us what we need to know about God. He has given to us, if you know Jesus as your Savior, he has given us his spirit who dwells within us, who instructs us, who enlightens our eyes, who allows us to read a passage of Scripture today, and it means very little to us, and read it tomorrow in a different circumstance of life, and it'd be rich to us. It fills and, and, and re, re, refreshes our soul because God's word is working in us by the work of his spirit. God teaches us, he instructs us, he points us, he lays out for us what God is like through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
If you want to know God, look to Jesus. And so we have that revelation there. Now, when we now, now look, I want to look at look at what Job, how Job responds to to this counsel of Zophar and of Eliphaz and of Bildad. Um, notice me, with me in your Bibles that, that Job affirms the things that Zophar claimed about God. Look in chapter twelve. Verses 1, 2, and 3, Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. That's pretty pretty smart, Alec, isn't it? Like, ooh. Um, But he says, But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? Yes, yes, Zophar, God's wisdom extends beyond our comprehension. So now, now, now follow, follow with me the, the, the train of, of, of thought that, we, we ha- that, Job, that Job has here. Job, Job is, is saying, yes, th- that is common knowledge, that, that the knowledge, the, the comprehension, the full comprehension of our creator is beyond mankind. We can never, never know him, but we can't. We, we, we can know him by how he has revealed himself to us. Look in, in verse number seven. He says, ask the beasts and they'll teach you. In other words, even the animal world understands, at least from what Job says, understands the, the greatness of their creator. Look at the birds of the heavens, he says, and they they will tell you. Verse number eight, look at the bushes of the earth and they will teach you and the fish of the sea, they they will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. With God are wisdom and might. He is He is counsel and understanding. I, I won't... I would encourage you to underline verse number 10. In, in his hand, in God's hand, is life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that Jesus Christ, all things were created by him and for him, and, and, and by him all things consist. He upholds all things, Hebrews chapter 1. He is the one that sustains all life, all Life, everything that draws breath, everything about creation is in God's hand. And, and Job is, is declaring, yes, this truth of the greatness of our God is known by all of creation. But although he affirms Zophar's claim that God is incomprehensible, he argues that God is knowable by revelation and by experience. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm fearful of using the term experience, but that's what Paul is, say, is speaking about here. Read with me in your Bibles, beginning in verse number three. It says, but I, I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? And then verse number four, I am a laughingstock to my friends. I, who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughingstock. Okay? Job's argument is straightforward. God has affirmed my right standing before him, in that I called 
to God, and he answered me. That's what he says here in, in that verse. God has affirmed my right standing before him in that I called to God, and he answered me. Job's assessment of his being just and blameless before God was not a self-righteous assessment. I want us to make that very clear. The, the book of Job does not, does not speak of Job's vanity and his self-righteousness saying, I'm a good guy. Why am I getting all these problems? No, his assessment is based upon what God had revealed to him about his standing before him. Right? We've already read in the first two chapters the very, this very same assessment that Job is making here. And it was made three different times. And two of the three times was made by God. And we would also add that the third time that it was mentioned was by the author of the book of Job who received it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So three times God makes the assessment that Job was righteous, he was blameless, and he eschewed evil before man. So Job wasn't speaking out of self-righteousness. Job was speaking as a man who, by God's mercy, was brought to faith in the revealed promises of God and was therefore counted to be righteous before him. Now, all of the dynamics of an Old Testament economy may be a little bit different from the New Testament in that that is before Christ came, but the fact of the matter is Job was saved by grace through faith. And he was saved by grace through faith because God's mercy drew him to himself and provided the means by which he might be able to stand right before him. So we find records of Job uh, offering up uh, bird offerings on behalf of his children. So somewhere along the line, the Lord revealed to him what was necessary for him to be in right standing before God. We know that was true in, in, in Genesis chapter 4, right? We know that's true in Genesis chapter 9 when Noah left the ark and he offered up, an, uh, offered up a, a burnt sacrifice to God. How did they know? Well, we have to assume that they knew because God told them that God had revealed it to them. But follow, follow Job's train of thought here. He is answering Zophar as well as the two others, and he is agreeing that God is incomprehensible, but God is knowable by what he reveals about himself. Through the means that, we, that, that God had provided, God counted Job to be righteous. He assured Job of it. And yet the one declared to be righteous by God himself was a laughingstock on the earth. And the implication is that he was a laughingstock because of his affliction. And he explains in verse number five, in the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. What does that mean? It's easy to play armchair quarterback on Monday, on Monday night. Is that how you word it? It's easy to call the plays when you're Tony Romo in the announcing booth doing a terrible job, telling what he would do when he was a crummy football quarterback. <laughs> Just a quick side note, he's, a, he, he's irritating. Um, <laughs> but, but the implication here is that Zophar, you are sitting in comfort. You are not being afflicted, so it's easy for you to critique what's going on with those who are afflicted. 
The same was said of Jesus, right? Isaiah chapter 53, we esteemed him afflicted by God. They looked at him who bore our sins, but we looked at him, we said, ah, he deserved it. And, and, and I want to just pause that for just, just a little bit because, because when we're not careful, we, we do the same thing. We look at others who are suffering and say, well, they're, do, they're, they're suffering because, like sweet little pious gas bags that we are. <laughs> and we become guilty of that very same thing. We don't know what God, we don't always know what God is doing. When you see the affliction of others from your easy chair, it's easy to judge them by, as deserving what they get. So, so Job presents a contrast. The, the tense, verse number six, look, look at what he says. The tents of the robbers are at peace. Those who provoke God, they're secure. In fact, these are the ones that bring their God in their hand. I mean, that idea of, of they have a portable God. I mean, they, they have a little idol they can put in their pocket. That's their God. And then he goes to the beast again. He said, listen, the, everyone knows that this is not right, but look in verse number 10 again. In um, verse number um, nine, nine, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? That's what Job is saying. Job understood that even though he stood, in, he stood right before God and there was no sin that had been revealed to him that was unconfessed, he was right before God, even though that was happening, that was happening he could not escape the fact that God was the one that brought the affliction. It was God that brought it about. Why? Because it is in God's hand that life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind rests. Are you following Job's train of thought? Job is saying that my affliction is from God. All of creation knows this. In his hand is the life of every living thing and breath of all mankind. How can this be? This seems to be a blatant injustice. This seems contrary to all of nature. Because I wouldn't do that. I only kill those who deserve it. That they don't see it, right? That's how we tend to think. But in the next few verses, Job concludes, and we'll finish up with this, but Job concludes that while it doesn't make sense, God has shown him that he is doing a work that I do not understand, and it is within his right to do so. That's, that's, that's Paul's, that's Paul. That is Job's conclusion. Verse number 11, does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Isn't that a vivid picture? Before you... Your wife says, hey, taste this. You taste it first, just, just a little bit, just a palate, so you know what it's like. That's what he's describing with their ears. We, we, we hear, we hear the revelation of God. We've experienced what he is doing, and we test it, and this is what happens. Wisdom, wisdom is with the aged, and understanding in length of days. In other words, we grow to, we grow to, to, to know more about our God as he reveals himself through life, this theology of God is played out in day-to-day life. Wisdom is with the aged, understanding in length of days. With God are wisdom and might, and he has counsel and understanding. There, there is no mistaking the fact that Job is not happy. You, you cannot read these, the, the, the book of Job, these middle chapters, uh, and 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 not could come to that conclusion. He is not happy with this revelation. 
In the chapters before us, Job will, will demand to plead his case before God. He will express his displeasure with what God is doing. And yet, he remains full of hope that God will, in fact, fulfill what he has purposed to do in him. And that really is the whole key. We don't always like what God is doing in our lives. No one enjoys affliction. It's like saying, I just loved it when my dad spanked me. No one enjoys it. But we can look back and say, thank God for a godly dad and a godly mom who loved me enough not to, not to allow me to continue on the path I was going. Or even in the fact of God's bringing affliction to someone that was innocent or was not, that was not, that was not, they do not have secret, secret sin. There is a rest and a trust in what God is doing because there is a rest and a trust in who God is. He remains full of hope that God, because of who he is, will fulfill what he has purposed to do in Job. Hope and peace in this life is realized only in the knowledge of our God. Very quickly, three applications. First of all, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you need to be made right before God. And the only way to, way to do that is not by joining a Baptist church. The way you are made right with God is through Jesus Christ and accepting by faith that his life, death, and resurrection is sufficient for your sin, to pay, as payment for your sin that you might be forgiven and that you might stand right before God. God doesn't call you to clean up your life first in order, so you, in order for you to be savable. God calls you to fall on your face before God, a sinner in need, in desperate need of a Savior. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you, I compel you today to turn to him in faith and to trust him. You might, you might um, answer and say, why would I want to become a Christian when there, is, when, when there is almost a guarantee that I will suffer? Well, because if you're not a Christian, you're still guaranteed that you will suffer. The difference is that there is an eternal hope and there is a, there is a purpose in what you face in this world. God is doing a work among his people. So I invite you to come and suffer with us because therein is life. Therein you might know God. Second application, suffering as a Christian is, has both a temporal and an eternal benefit. Temporal in the sense of the immediate, but immediate in that God is working in us right now to mold us and to shape us into the very image of his son that we might look more and more like Jesus. But it also prepares us for eternity. You are being changed and one day we will enter into glory and we will be prepared to be presented to our God by our bridegroom. Third, true Christian hope is realized in knowing God. Clarity of purpose is realized in a life lived to glorify God. You need to know God. And you have the means by which you can. Give yourself to knowing God. Not Knowing about God. Nothing wrong with knowing about God. 
I, 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 yeah, nothing wrong with knowing about God, but if it just stays here, some of the rudest people I've ever met are great theologians that up here. But coming to know God here and allowing God to reveal himself to you for who he is and what he has done for you. Give yourself, give yourself to drawing near to our God. Thank you, dear Heavenly Father, for revealing yourself to us that we might know you. Because in knowing you, in the way, in the, through the provision that you've made, Jesus Christ, you have given us life. This is eternal life, that we might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. For those who are here without Christ, Lord, we, we ask that you, in your mercy and in your kindness toward them and toward us, that you would crowd them to yourself, to your Son, that they might be saved. Bring them to an understanding of their need for a Savior. Expose them to their sin as they are exposed to the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. And to pray that today you would save. For those of us who know you as our Savior, Lord, help us to, help us to love learning and learning more about you. Help us to love knowing you more and more each and every day. Thank you for your willingness to reveal yourself to us that we might, we might understand your ways, we might understand your works, and that we might trust you, whatever you might do. Prepare us as we face uh, this coming week. May we live lives as people who know God and who are known by their God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.